come on back. And uh, we're going to tackle uh, the third chapter of, um, of Acts. So uh, turn there, but really you might want to stop as you're turning there to John chapter 3. And we'll, we'll look at that real quick and then go on. So John chapter 3. There's this really famous verse, and that's where we'll start. I don't know if Beck told you, but there's food afterwards today. And uh, so we're going to eat together uh, today. Uh, family reunion's back on, and uh, we have plenty of food, so stay. And uh, I always say, uh, find somebody you don't normally sit with and learn about their life and share your life with them. And that would be an amazing blessing. And if you're downstairs and you're listening, well, okay, good. Just make sure that we just pay attention to the word. And um, anyway, that'd be awesome too. And uh, people are wanting to study downstairs, so that's good. But uh, uh, anyway, pay attention. <laughs> so... Um, there's this really famous chapter in John chapter 8, or excuse me, John chapter 3, uh, and uh, uh, it's talking about the new birth, and you know probably uh, the most famous verse in all the Bible comes from this chapter, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's in John 3.16. But, you know, that's set in the context of Jesus talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus who asked Jesus to come over at night. And Nicodemus has some questions from him, like, how can a man be born again? You know, as Jesus told him, he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And he says, what, what do I have to go back into my mom's body to be born again? And Jesus says this in verse 5. Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and that's a capital S, this is the Holy Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is the reason I took you here. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We've been talking in the book of Acts about the Holy Spirit. Who He is. What He does. Some of His ministries. And we talked uh, over the last two or three weeks about the power that he gives from on high. In fact, the number one verse probably in all of the book of Acts is found in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? Witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we said that that happens for us as we go out on mission. And we talked about God being a missional God. I mean, God is on mission. That's just who He is. It's not necessarily something He does. It's who He is. Before the foundation of the world, one God and three persons, fully self-sufficient. 
fully communicative, didn't have to make humans, but nevertheless creates a world where humans populate it. Men and women, boys and girls populate the earth. Listen, knowing that they were going to fall, sin, rebel, and that he would have to send his son. Listen to the word I'm using, send. All of God's story as he interacts with us is about him being on mission. And you could say in one way, the whole message of the Bible is God's pursuit of men and women, boys and girls, to get them into the family of God and become Christ-like and to live with them forever. That's the whole Bible. So God is missional. And so because he's missional, his kids are missional, and that's us. At the end of the Gospels, he says, you're going to be making disciples going out into all the earth, but you need the power. And the power is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we, for the last several, you know, two or three weeks, have seen it in a major way. I mean, come on, rushing mighty wind, divided tongues fall upon that 125 in the upper room. We've seen it, haven't we? And then speaking in tongues... A crowd of people comes around and many get saved. It says 3,000 as Peter preaches the first open-air sermon. And so this book, in one way, is about the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the early church and the ministry that he continues to this day in our church, but the church at large. And that many people are walking around with no power and attempting to go on mission without the person and work of the Holy Spirit empowering them for ministry. And that's what it always is for. It's for ministry and witnessing and bringing people into the kingdom. And now we come to chapter 3. And the reason I read you John chapter 3, verse 8, about the wind, he equates wind is what the Holy Spirit's like because you can't see the Holy Spirit but you know when God is working in a person's life as God comes into somebody's life and their whole world is transformed as their sins have been forgiven and they're put right with God and there's peace and joy and love. And now the mission that they used to have, build my kingdom, go on vacation, do everything for me and blah, 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 consume, 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 now becomes a mission to serve and to love others, even the unlovable, and it takes the Holy Spirit to do it. But what's interesting about chapter 3 is you're going to see the effects of the Holy Spirit in all of chapter 3, and his name's not mentioned once, which is really interesting. You don't always see the Holy Spirit, and yet you see the impact of his work. John 3, 8 tells us. So now that you get over here, it says now Peter and John. Peter and John. That's where we are now. Remember, 3,000 get saved. We see a picture of what the early church was doing at the end of chapter 2. We get a picture of how the early church lived as they had to figure out a way to serve and to love and to grow up these 3,000 that were there for the Feast of Pentecost, 
who came around and needed fed and housed. And the Holy Spirit uh, empowers these people. And the Bible tells us in 42 of chapter 2 that they continued steadfastly in doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. That was their life. That was their life during this time. And fear came upon every soul. Watch this. I'm reading this. For a purpose, God bless you. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. There were many wonders and signs done through apostles. And we see that in verse 46, they continued daily with one accord. Where? Read it to me. In the temple. Now, you've got to know something about the temple, or this chapter is never going to make any sense to you, in my opinion, or have its impact that it should have, in my opinion. If you study the Bible, how many temples were there? Anybody know? Two. That's interesting. Yes, two. But the second one sometimes is referred to as having been renovated, and so sometimes they say three. But she's right, whoever said two. There were two. The first one was whose temple? Yell it out. Solomon's temple. And in 586 B.C., where are the Reynolds? Where are the Reynolds? They joke so much with me about that date that they got me a Christmas ornament that says 586 B.C. on it. Is that hysterical or what? (laughs) But in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and wrecked Solomon's temple. And then for 70 years, they were in exile, and King Cyrus allows them to come back. And you know the stories, don't you? They're in the Bible. What books tell us about the rebuilding of the temple? Ezra and Nehemiah, and the temple gets rebuilt uh, during that time. And so that second temple, why I say there's a third, is there's a guy named Herod that comes along closer to the time of Jesus, and he, he's like, this doesn't look as good as Solomon's temple, let's make it better. And so some people claim there's three temples, but it's the same temple made bigger and better. So at the time of Jesus, we're in the second temple period. And the temple, we're going to show it to you in a minute, had a whole bunch of courts, and it was up in Jerusalem. That was a very important place for the Jewish people. And apparently, according to the Psalms, according to Daniel, and some other places, they had three times during each day, each day in which they had prayer services or times that you went up to the temple. Can you imagine traipsing up to the temple three times a day or even one time a day? And not just on the Sabbath, they didn't do it. They, uh, you know, or the prescribed times of church, they actually went up there daily. That was part of their program. And there were sacrifices involved and times of prayer. They usually went at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m., to the temple. Everybody good with it. And you see here that two of the early apostles, these guys named Peter and John, you know the stories of Peter and John, right? Peter and John, they go up together. Now, Peter and John had a history together. Three and a half years of history, and even actually well before that, they seem to have been partners in a fishing business. Now, stick with me here. And their fishing business wasn't in Jerusalem. It was way up north in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus 
called them from there. And they appeared to have some sort of business arrangement in fishing. And they were part of Jesus's inner circle, so much so that like during the transfiguration, they were two of the three who got to witness that thing, that transfiguration. And also, remember on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he went into the garden, dropped some of the apostles off, and then went in farther, and he took his inner circle, and these are two of them. Uh, and so uh, we see that they've had a history. They were said to go and help prepare the Passover meal, and Jesus gave them instructions. And remember, on the morning of the resurrection, who saw the tomb was empty first, men or women? Women, and that's an important part, in my opinion, of the scriptures, because if you were writing a, a, um, con- a counterfeit gospel, you would never say that the women found the re- tomb empty, not because women don't deserve dignity or respect, but back at that time, uh, they weren't allowed to testify in court and all that sort of thing. So you'd never write, if you were lying about the resurrection, that women found the tomb empty, but the Gospels do. But what did the, who did the women run to? Peter and John. And then, you, then come in Peter and John. Now, I point this out because we are, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, if you study the personality of Peter, anybody resonate with this? He was loudmouth. Okay, raise your hand if you're a loudmouth. No, I'm kidding. He was a loud mouth. He was impetuous. He was, you know, fast to anger. And he would stick his foot in his mouth so he could get the other one in there. And uh, he did a lot of weird, not weird, but fast moving without waiting on the Lord things. And, you know, he was explosive and all that sort of stuff. And the Lord really did a number in Peter's life because he's the one that denied Jesus those Uh, times there on the night uh, when he was, uh, before he was killed, crucified. But John, on the other hand, is the apostle of love. He writes more about love than anybody in the Gospels, and he, he was more of the contemplative, the quiet one, which is really sort of interesting. He was the one who laid against Jesus's breast. He was into relationship, and Peter was into action. Can you resonate with that one way or the other? And oftentimes, I'll give you an example, me and Xander. Xander tends to be more Peter, although Xander doesn't put his foot in his mouth, but he's more, get it done, let's do it, put it on a list. I'm more of, uh, talk to me about that tomorrow, let's uh, go worship the Lord. And it's not better or good, but there we are together. And I know how I am, must, he's too nice to say, but must drive Xander nuts. But why I'm pointing this out is Peter and John went up together, you see. Because, by the way, John had an anger management problem. He was called a son of thunder, but he was quieter about it. He was like the tea kettle that sort of kept it all in and then blew. Peter wore all his emotions on his sleeve, you get it? And here they come, two really radically different people. Look, watch this linked together in ministry, put together by Jesus himself for ministry, which tells me something, I think, and you. Just because somebody in the church is different from you and would do it a different way doesn't mean the Lord doesn't want you to go in ministry together. 
You don't always have to pick the people who are just like you. Lord can use you together and you're linked together by the very life of Christ. We are to be bearing long with people, including <laughs> our people in ministry. And I think that points it out right here. Here we go. The birth of the church and Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has ministered to these people. And now God is sending them out in power, Peter and John. Peter has already given this amazing open-air sermon in chapter 2 for 3,000 to get saved. And now Peter and John go up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. Here they come. They are living a life of consistency. Do you see that? What the early church needs, and I need and you need, is power from on high. Not our own individual power. But watch, they kept themselves consistent. This can't be the Sabbath day, I don't think. And the reason I don't think it's the Sabbath day is because a healing is about ready to happen. And if there was a healing on the Sabbath, there would have been people complaining about that as a violation of the law. And you don't see that here, which means they must have been going on a general weekday. This was the pattern of the people in the early church's life that they would receive power on high by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but as they moved out daily, prayer was in their life. It wasn't something you just did once a week for a little short time. It was something that you did every single day with people you have similar interests with and with people you don't. You get it? If you want to live a life of consistency as we move out on mission, one of the first things that we ought to be about is prayer. Why? Prayer is the very breath of God, communing with God and receiving from God and seeing where we're going and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and who he's going to send us to. Peter and John go up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, the ninth hour is very interesting. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. It's the third or third of the times of prayer together. Oh, by the way, uh, they don't mention anything about sacrifices during this time. It doesn't mention here in chapter 3, Peter and John don't talk about it. I think it's primarily because the early church recognized that sacrifices were not needed anymore. Do you get what I'm saying? Because the ultimate sacrifice was Jesus himself. But they didn't divorce themselves from the life that they lived. They kept going to the temple areas to pray by the blood of Jesus. Glad we sang that song. So that's what we're doing. And there's a certain man lame from his mother's womb. He's carried. And they laid him daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. Now listen, the temple is the center of everything everybody does at this time who's Jewish. In fact, we're going to show you a little bit about, we're even going to give you a little picture, a little art. We're so amazing. Maybe we're going to. And uh, we're going to show you, how about the art picture? You got that? Can we go to the art? Look at that. I, I'm so organized. This is the picture of a piece of art of... Uh, Peter and John uh, going to the beggar, the lame man, at the gate, beautiful. And then uh, we saw the next picture, whatever they showed me there. 
And I want to show you a little bit about the temple. Here's the temple area. This is actually the temple with some different courtyards around. And I want you to see this porch. There's a porch that rings it. This is the eastern porch. Here is the southern steps. I want you to take note of that. And these are tunnels that come up here and empty out on top. So you go from the bottom to the top. These steps right here today, sort of in disarray, you can actually sit. And I actually sent a picture of that, but I bet I didn't put that up, of us sitting on those steps when we go. We actually sit there. Now listen, just as an aside, there, and when you go to Israel, almost never are you actually putting your feet on the place where Jesus put his feet. And here's why. Because civilization after civilization after civilization has grown up. And so when you're where Jesus walked, you're actually up here. But where he actually walked was here. Except for a couple places. And there's one of them. If Jesus walked into the temple area, and he did, he would have actually been on those actual steps. So this is it, and this is still remaining. Again, none of this remains because the second temple in 70 AD was wrecked by the Romans. Everybody tracking with me? Hit the next one if we can, please. This is just a different model that's given you from the eastern gate. Here's the eastern gate where Jesus is going to arrive when he comes back. And here's the temple area and some uh, outer courts. And right in here, it's just facing that way, it looks exactly the same, is the eastern part of Solomon's porch where people would gather from the elements, the sun, etc. Okay. Next one, please. By the way, there's the southern steps down there, and there's the empty. Now, this is a picture right down into the courts, the temple, and again, you can see the porticos right there. I just wanted to give you that picture because this is what you're, they, this is where they are uh, when you get there. How about that next one of Jerusalem I put up there? So, oh, the city itself. Yeah, so I want to read something to you. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. What were they doing? What was the beggar doing? The one in the uh, picture. To ask alms from those who entered the temple. What's alms? Anybody know? It's charity. He was asking for money, for food, something. Yeah, an alms. And in the Jewish religion, to give an alms was a, listen, was a merit to get to God. So, Wherever this guy was sitting, we're going to see he was very well known, this beggar. And uh, I'm just going to show you, we looked at the, this area right here. I just showed you three pictures of it. There's the southern steps. There's the tunnels. Got it? And there's the eastern gate. And there is what's called the beautiful gate. But the funny part about this is if you read three experts... They're going to give you three different answers. Nobody knows where the beautiful gate is definitively. Here are the three possibilities. This right here, which is actually called Nicanor's Gate. And some people uh, say it was so beautiful and I, I, ornate that it has to be the beautiful gate because Josephus, an extra-biblical scholar, 
says that it was so beautiful you couldn't miss it, and this one was beautiful. The problem with that is a lame person probably couldn't get in there at the time. It could be here at the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate, or there's a very well-respected archaeologist who believes there was a gate right here that were in those steps, and that certainly was the beautiful gate. Well, which one is it? I have no idea. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to get that picture in your mind. The Pentecost feast is over. People are leaving out of the city, but that didn't derail the apostles from continuing to go up to the temple to pray. Watch that. And they go there and they enter the temple and watch this. This guy's asking alms from those who entered the temple, whether it is any of those gates, it had to be at a high traffic area. That's why the respected archaeologist says it had to be there. I don't know. Uh, anyway, he's in a real uh, uh, well-trafficked area who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the uh, temple, asked for alms, asked for some charity. And I want you to underline this next verse. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Now, I want you to think when the guys are begging at uh, the lights, what you do and what I do sometimes when they're at the lights and they're walking up and down the street. You suddenly have this desire and this innate, um, or this desire to have this unbelievable com communication with your wife or your husband. And you turn to them and you speak and you just let the beggar go up and back, right? That's not what happened here. In the Greek, this is Peter, the impetuous one, the foot-in-mouth one, who's now, watch this, been filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What for? For ministry and witnessing. And Peter would be the one like me who had a deadline. Hey, 3 o'clock, we got to be there. In fact, since it's 3 o'clock, we're going to be there at around 2.35. We're going to get our seat. We got to get our position. And Jan would be like, did you say 235 or 435? And she would take time for the beggar. But what I want you to see is both of them as they're going to meet their appointment, which is an important appointment to meet with the Lord were not too busy to fix their eyes on a very famous beggar. This guy must have been there for a long time. You'll see why in a minute. See, I think that's part of Holy Spirit living, is not to ignore the people. You have all the theology. You've got the sermon can in the can. You, you know what you're going to say. You got the, the method for evangelism. You, you Four spiritual laws or bad news, good news or Ray Comfort system or you figured out some system on your own or you, you have a track that you're going to read people. And I think a lot of people mix miss the fixing of the eyes. That intentional listening and looking and having compassion on the person, whether they're on the ground or not, because Romans tells us when we were without strength, that's when Christ 
was sent to us. In other words, we were like the beggar here, the lame man. We were lame. And here, fixing your eyes, I believe, is something that the Holy Spirit is directing these two guys to. Because naturally, one of them's not like it. Now they've locked arms and both of them see this guy. And what do they say? Peter says, now watch, look at us. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Isn't that a strange thing to say to uh, somebody who's struggled for all their life to walk and is begging for charity? And he says, look at us. And I don't think it's in any weird, weird, authoritative way. I think what Peter and John are communicating to this man is we see you and we want to hear you and listen to you and take interest in you really. And as you see here, they have something that's more important even than the food or the money. And watch. That drove their life on a daily basis. Not just on Sundays. But this was just who they were now. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they saw this man and they said, Oh, what an opportunity. Why don't you just look at us? So he gave them his attention. Expecting to receive something from them. Of course he would. That was his life. I think he also asked him to look at him because watch. Oftentimes, have you ever had this experience when you're maybe stopping and talking to somebody less fortunate as you? Sometimes you stop and talk, and when they discover that you want to just talk, they sort of look the other way and go on to the next. You ever had that experience happen to you? I have. I'm not criticizing anybody. It's just reality. And I think Paul and John are saying, look at us. So he gives them his attention. What? Look at you. Okay. Man, they must have something really great for me. And of course he does. Something greater than they could ever imagine. Well, Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I want you to rise up and walk. Now, I want you to think of something or or examine something and think through something, and that's this. When we pray in the name of Jesus or do things in the name of Jesus, it's not some formula or incantation. Lord, I need a Lexus and I need a new suit and I need, uh, uh, you know, uh, a book you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A budget for books, and I need, uh, in Jesus' name. It's like you're writing the check, or thinking you're writing the check. But see, that's not the way you should think of it ever. (laughs) When you pray or you do something in the name of Jesus Christ, you're recognizing that Jesus is the only one who could ever do anything about the situation. You're recognizing who he is in his character, in his attributes. He's great and all-powerful, and he has power over the dead (laughs) or death. He's defeated death, and he's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and his character is power and beauty and forgiveness and love and strength and vision, and clarity. So when you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, you're saying that 
This one, Jesus, is the only one who could do anything about it because of his character. Do you get it? It's not something to tag on to the end of the prayers so you get what you want. So that's important. In the name of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, sorry, rise up and walk. And he, watch this, took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Oh, you say, oh, more, more spiritual gifts. Amen. And um, actually, it's 12. Sorry about that. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Verse 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Watch this. Just what we've been talking about. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, Watch this. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gift of healings. Right there in 1 Corinthians 12. When you come back to the story, you think, you know what I think just happened for Peter right there? He was given the supernatural gift of faith. You say, what are you talking about? We all have faith. Yes, we all have faith as we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. But sometimes the Lord, in his Sovereignty gives us a supernatural ability to have faith when everything else around you looks like it's impossible. Can you imagine in the temple areas with all the people traipsing in and out, watch, and you walk over to the man who everybody knows, you're going to see it in a minute, and hold out your hand and say, grab it because you're going to walk. He must have had faith, supernatural faith, a gift of faith right there, which is coupled, did you notice in 1 Corinthians 12? It's coupled with the gift of healings. And here it is, right in front of our eyes, right there in the temple areas. He takes him by the right hand, lifts him up, and immediately, watch, healing. His feet and ankle bones receive strength. Now, You don't get this because you're not a Greek scholar and you're not a doctor and neither am I. And the only reason I know it is I can just look it up on my phone. But these are medical terms. Who's a medical doctor? Luke. And he's giving not just, oh, his ankle bones got stronger and his feet. He's actually using medical terms that seem to indicate that this man for most of his life, if not all of his life, had feet that were out of his sockets, that laid flat. And at the gift of faith, as the power of the Lord did what it can do and heal, he asked him to rise up and walk, take my hand and come on, we're going to walk. And at that moment, what this is saying is, his ankles went back into socket and he could walk. That's what that's saying. So he does that, and he takes him by the right hand. He lifts him up. His feet and ankles are strengthened, and he leaps and stands and walks. And can you believe this? You've seen it now. 
He lifts, he stands, he walks, he stands, he walks, he leaps, and he's walking, he's leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God, and then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement what had happened to him. Now, why in the world is this in chapter 3? Why is this in chapter 3? Well, I think there's several reasons. I read it to you to begin because this was the daily life of the apostles. I mean, their daily life was not going home and watching the NFL, folks. And I might do that, but it wasn't that. Hey, what fun thing can we do this afternoon? They were so filled up with the Lord. There was so much joy and peace and strength and power from the Holy Spirit. They couldn't contain it. It just poured out of them. They would never ask, oh, let's go do this or that for it. They, they, they were on mission, man. So I think that's one reason. They're just doing what they were called to do. They were doing many signs and wonders during this time. And then, remember, this is taking us from, watch this, from the Jew, Acts is taking us from the Jews to how the gospel got to the Gentiles. And you say, well, all these people are Jewish. Well, that's true. But if you don't have chapter 3, you don't have chapter 4, and you'll never get to chapter 10. You get it? And so this is just, you could read it this way, watch, just as the link to get you to the Gentiles or to Rome. Everybody tracking with me. Why else? Is this written? Well, here's the best of all, I think. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, written about 800 to 1,000 years prior, and turn with me to chapter 35. This chapter in my Bible is called The Future Glory of Zion. Remember, it's written 800 to 1,000 years prior to the time of Christ. Everybody with me? And the Lord speaks through this guy named Isaiah. And he's talking about Zion and what the millennial kingdom in Israel will look like. But watch, he gives us also what the kingdom of God will be like when there's a Messiah, or the Messiah, what will the kingdom of God look like? Watch this in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Watch. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness. And this is speaking of what God's kingdom is going to be like in the future when the millennial reign comes in, but it's also all these things are associated with the reign of the Messiah. So when you read this and you're like, oh, why does the Lord put that in there? Watch this. Jesus isn't on the scene physically anymore. Man, that amazes me. 
And Jesus said that his followers would do greater things. And the Lord sends. He says, it's good if I go away because I'll send the helper, the Holy Spirit. Folks, who does the Holy Spirit live in? Yes, us, you, anybody who surrendered their life to Christ. What the Lord is announcing right here is that the Lord is still alive and working in and through his people by the person and work of the Holy Spirit, even in these times where you don't see Jesus. That's what this is saying. And yes, he can fit, uh, heal physically, and sometimes he does. And praise the Lord for that. We believe in the miracles, of course. But listen, sometimes he doesn't. Ask Johnny Erickson Tata. But he's going to. When she goes to be with the Lord, she'll be leaping, and she's never leapt since she was a little girl. This is what his kingdom is marked by. And there's power in the name of Jesus. It's not an incantation. It's a belief and a, a faith in the one who can only, or the only one who could do anything about all these things. That's it. Watch what it leads to. So they do this thing. And they're all filled with wonder and amazement what had happened to them. It's sort of like what happened with tongues. Chapter 2. All this stuff starts happening and people are like, well, let's go see what that is. And here, this is happening at one of those gates and people are going up and back to the time of the prayers at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they're like, what? I've seen that guy every day for the last 40 years. My dad used to bring me here. I've seen him since this whole time, and he's walking. I used to see his grossly disfigured feet and feel sorry for him, and my eyes were averted, and he went, I went by him, and no, he's healed. What is going on? Watch this. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together them to them in the porch. And the reason I showed you all those pictures, you can get in your mind, what's the porch? Well, there it is. As the lame man was healed uh, or held on to Peter and John. Isn't that a great verse? It's like they were arm in arm going up the steps. This guy who'd laid there, he was so happy and he was jumping and he just wanted to hug him and hold on to them and Peter and John said, great, and hugged him and put their arms around him or locked arms or something, and off they go, and they went up some sort of steps or through a gate. All of the gates, by the way, would have steps, which is called Solomon's. They were at that porch, and people were greatly amazed. So watch, watch, watch. You say, well, my goodness, what, um, what an opportunity Peter has. Here he is at the crossroads. Here's the crossroad, folks. Man, am I a good minister. Look what the Lord does in and through me. Pious old me. He's at a crossroads. Peter and John, they're both there. They're right at the crossroads. Or, as the Lord says, don't steal my glory. Or they can give praise to the one who could do something about it. 
They're right there. And watch this. Walk through the door of sharing the gospel. And they did it, in my opinion, in the person and in the power and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He's not mentioned in this chapter, but he's really at work. So here they come. They're running up the steps arm in arm. All three of them, they're probably skipping. And people come around. And when Peter saw it, watch this. Peter had his spiritual antennas up because the Holy Spirit was doing something in him. He didn't just let it go by. Yay, praise the Lord for a guy who's walking. He did do that, but he knew now was the time to walk through the door. And so he does. All these people are there together. He's probably a loud mouth, just saying. So he's perfect guy to speak in a porch or off of the porch to thousands of people who've gathered. If you've been up in that Temple Mount, you'd see where lots of people could gather. So right then he goes, men of Israel, I think that's important. Know your audience. I'm not saying in some contrived way. If you want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and be a witness for him, I think it's important that you know your audience. I, don't, I think it's biblical when he, Paul speaks in a place called Athens, he doesn't use this same approach. He uses a different approach. Peter, who's now speaking to the Jews, uses the first five books of the Bible to preach to them. And what's really fascinating is you can just read this chapter on the surface level, okay? You can read it on the surface level. You can read the story and know the story and see that they get in trouble for it at the beginning of chapter 4, or you can really dig in, and here's why I say that. Because this sermon is full of Christology. What's that? It's going to explain to us in theological ways, the person and nature and essence of Christ. And here's another thing this sermon does, really fascinating. Let's see if you can pick it out. It speaks of eschatology, stuff that's going to happen in the end times. Peter talks to them about it. And it talks about soteriology. What's that? That's the study of salvation. It speaks about that in this uh, uh, uh approach as well. You're like, okay, just get on with it. But I'm saying here, what I'm trying to tell you is you can read it on one level, just the story and the story's great. And we can see the Holy spirit, or you can really dig in to the theology here. Watch. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, I know who I'm talking to. He knows who he's talking to. Why do you marvel at this? Why would Peter say that? I think why he would say it is because the Jews knew that God was the creator of all things and could do all things. And they had been told about this time through prophets and other speaking people, and they had known the real facts about resurrection. But why do you marvel at this, or why you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Always give glory to the Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he's calling and bringing up images in the minds of the people who he's sharing with of the promises of God. Everybody with me? 
It's an approach evangelism. How do you speak to somebody who doesn't know the Lord? Well, here it is. He knows his audience. He talks out of the scriptures. He relates to them the things that they know. Jesus did it. You don't change the gospel. No, never do that. But you find out about the person. You be a right divider of the word, which means you think and you could speak the gospel. So this one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now, you're not Jewish, but if you searched all of Isaiah, there would be several scriptures in there that call the suffering servant the Messiah. So the servant Jesus, of course, he's going to talk to them in Jewish terms that they would know, although we have the scriptures as well, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now, he gets real right here, doesn't he? I mean, he, he gets real. He identifies who Jesus is. He teaches them out of their own scriptures, and then he gets real. He gets right to the point. You're the ones who delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now, think about who Pilate is. He's a Roman. He's an enemy of the people. And what he's saying is you delivered him over to the enemy. How's that for being direct? So he does that, and then when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One. The Holy One's a title for God, by the way. Are you seeing what he's doing? He's teaching them through the names that they would know about who Jesus is in nature and essence, including calling him God. Did you catch that? So he's teaching them as he goes, and the just or that one can be righteous one. Uh, it's a word that means innocent one who was put to death. Fascinating. And ask for a murderer to be granted to you. What is uh, Peter explaining right there? That an innocent one died for a guilty one. Can you believe that? And if you would be honest with yourself, and I know you have, you would say that's what he's done for you or for me. The innocent one in the place of the guilty one. And he uses Barabbas, who was a murderer and a thief. You say, well, I'm not a murderer and a thief. Really? You ever hated anyone? Jesus said, if you did, you're a murderer. You need a savior, in other words. And so do I. So he keeps going, and he says this. You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life. There's another one. This is a, really, a word in the Greek that they can't really translate. It's either Prince of Life, which means leader going out front, or it's author, the one who authored life. But what's clear from what they're trying to communicate here is that life originates with Jesus. Now watch. And the ironic part of this is, you killed him. Oh. Whom God raised from the dead, but you didn't, he, he wasn't kept down. He was raised from the dead by the Father, of which we are witnesses. Can you imagine Paul and John, they're witnesses, of which we're witnesses. And his name, watch this, through faith in his name. It's really an awkward sentence. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. It's the name and character and power and authority of Jesus 
that made this lame man walk. That's what they're saying right there. You're learning now Christology. Life originates with Jesus. And they were learning it. And he says, you, uh, uh, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. He's well, he's made whole. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You did it in ignorance. So maybe to some people that would bother you. But what I think what they're saying here is that the people who gave him over to Pilate didn't understand what they were truly doing. They just didn't understand that. It was not an ignorance of a lack of opportunity, one scholar says, to understand, but an ignorance in failing to perceive with understanding what was happening. They were ignorant that this was going by uh, and understanding all the things or all the uh, implications of what happened. But watch this. You now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Here we go. Tune in just for a second. Repent. Repent, therefore, and be converted. If you're sitting here today, and you have never trusted Jesus, this message is for you to repent and be converted, to be born again by the Holy Spirit. But it, as you are trusting in Jesus, you'll be repenting, which means you'll be agreeing with God that you're a sinner and moving towards him and quit, uh, quit moving in your own agenda. You're going to change your direction, your mind, about who you are, and you're going to go with him. That's what this means. Repent and be converted Converted from what? From just being a good moral person or whatever you think you are, what really you are, outside of Christ, just have to be honest, is a child of wrath. The wrath of God is upon us when we're outside Christ. But when you're converted, you come into the kingdom of the son of love. So that your sins may be blotted out. That's just a tremendous word. If you like Kirk Furquette, where's Kirk Furquette? There he is. If you love those pens, what are the fountain pens, and you have the great ink with the paper, you know what the paper is designed to do to absorb that ink quickly and boldly and clearly, right? And they got the certain pen and boom, and it absorbs it. But oftentimes back then, they didn't have the writing instruments that could do that. So when you would write something out on a piece of parchment, watch, it wouldn't, the, the parchment wouldn't bite into the ink. That's what this word means. And it would just be laying at the top so that miraculously, oftentimes you could come and just wipe it off and it would, it would be as if it was never there. That's what that means. Your sins have been blotted out or wiped away or obliterated. Your slate is wiped clean. Who loves that? Yes so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Okay, of course, times of refreshing. For those who are found in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, peace, love, joy, rest in Christ. Yes, that's for you, uh, all of us. But in this contact, context, most scholars believe that this is a es 
Eschatological. It's an, a reference to eschatology. Because the Bible tells us that God still is not done with Israel. That in the future, Bible tells us in Romans 11, the ultimate thing, all of Israel will be saved. When Jesus comes back to the earth with his saints and his scars in his hands, the Jews are going to look upon the one that they pierced and recognize him as Savior. And so this, many people believe, is a reference to that time of refreshing when they're all going to be in Israel, they're going to be saved, we're going to be participating there, and the land over there is going to come back to life. And if you've been there, you see in a lot of ways the land is coming back to life because they're experts in irrigation and planting, but God's going to do it. If you go down to the Dead Sea, <laughs> it is dead. <laughs> I mean dead. And the Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, you want to you make a bazillion dollars? Go buy a tackle or bait shop down at the Dead Sea. Because when Jesus comes back, it's going to come back to life. And there's going to be life in the Dead Sea where no life can live. In other words, there's going to be amazing times of refreshing both in the land and in the people. You get it? And so he tells them this right there. And that he may send Jesus Christ, verse 20, after he said the presence of the Lord, there's going to be times of refreshing, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Jesus is coming back, and there's going to be this time of restoration in Israel. Who's excited about that? Yes, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. You think... Can you imagine? Come on, folks. This guy's a fisherman. He's not a trained expert lawyer or orator or logic professor or philosopher. He is a fisherman. And I'm not, fishermen can do great things, but where did he get this? The Holy Spirit. And he goes and he just keeps going on. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. He's quoting Deuteronomy. This is right from Deuteronomy. Moses said there's one going to come on the scene who's a prophet, a great prophet, as the Messiah. The funny part about that is, is the Jews use this not to believe in Jesus because Jesus said he was the Son of God. Moses was just a man, so if the Messiah is like him... Messiah will be just a man. And so they use this not to believe in the Messiah, but they forget, uh, as uh, Chuck Smith points out, they forget to go into Isaiah where the one who will be sent will be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They don't put the two together. But anyway, there was this prophecy during Moses' time that there was going to be a prophet who would come. And watch this, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now watch, you smart people, which is every one of you. If you want to go deep in the Bible, here's where you go deep. Ready? I'm going to take you there, and I want you to just pay attention. Just for a few more minutes. Watch this. 
He combines Deuteronomy 18 with the great book of Leviticus. And he goes to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, in in, in around verse 28, 29, watch, talks about the great day of atonement. That day when the great high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and prepay, so to speak, pay forward for the whole nation of Israel their sins. Not pay for it, that he wouldn't pay for it, but he would give sacrifice for it, okay? And he would go in there sort of at his peril. They used to have a put a little bell on his uh, hem of his robe because if he went in there and he was unclean, he might get put to death. And they had to hear him if he fell down so they could pull him out because nobody else could go in there. So he didn't pay the penalty for the sins, but he took the sacrifices and did all that in the Holy of Holies. Everybody tracking with me. And guess what Leviticus tells the people to do who couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. It says this. It says that they should afflict their souls during that day. What? Afflict their souls. What's that? Well, it's sort of like have a watch. I want you to write it down. Sort of have a humble repentance, a tenderness to your heart. Be uh, humble. And he links these two and watch. I just, I'll stop after this. So you glaze will come off your eyes. I will. I promise. But if you'll listen to this, this will bless your soul. If you fail to listen to the one that Moses prophesied about, who was the prophet people that I'm talking to, Peter said, you'll miss the atoning sacrifice. And your souls won't be counted as afflicted and you'll be destroyed. That's what he just said to his fellow countrymen. He equated all those things back into the Old Testament to Jesus himself. Are you catching that? It's powerful. And it would have evoked real emotions in the people who were listening in that porch. So he goes, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel, by the way, for you smart people, Samuel never really gave any prophecies, but who was he linked to? David. And David was prophesied from his line was going to come the Messiah. So from all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have been spoken, have also foretold these days. What days? That there was going to be a prophet Moses talked about who was going to be tied to David, and in him is going to be your hope for atonement. It's incredible. That's his, minister, uh, that's his sermon in evangelism to his countrymen. This was a right divider of the word, and he was a fisherman. Nothing wrong with fisher people. But here's the point. All of us common Joes and Joettes, filled with the Holy Spirit, do this too. So he goes on, empties it out, or finish it out. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's saying, how privileged are you that you've grown up around all of this, and now's your opportunity. As he's given them the real scoop, he comes around and says, 
now you've been given an opportunity to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. You see how he ends in the wonderful note? The Bible tells us that the gospel went first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, and you're watching it happen here. And you're sitting in here as Gentiles seeing the fruit of the back half of the book of Acts. Send him to bless you in turning everyone away, or every one of you away from your iniquities, which means evil purposes or wrong desires or sins or your wrong actions. Seems to me that even now, as we move on in this, watch, repentance is a place that we need to stay at. Repentant people. Jesus talks about it. If you want to be forgiven, you've got to be a forgiving person. It's not a give-to-get situation. It's that the Father in heaven is full of forgiveness, so will his kids be. Finally, he says this, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Catch that? They're in the temple areas, and the real important Jewish people now, including people uh, you know, who can do them harm, are coming to them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What bothered them up there? Did you catch that? It's always that way. You can talk about all the spiritual stuff, but when you say Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you're hitting nervy ground for the enemy. He doesn't want that message to go out. And they're teaching that, and they laid hands on them. What does that mean? It wasn't laying hands for prayer. It was grabbing them by the lapels to put them in the clink. And he put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, watch. We were just talking. This is the third time I'm going to say it in three days. We were reading a book for our adult Sunday school class, and we are talking about what is the glory of God. And Warren Wearsby mentions that when you get down through all the definitions and the machinations of what, or the theories of what is the glory of God, he sort of gives us a litmus test. It's not really the glory of God if you can explain it. If it's part of the unexplainable, that's the glory of God. It can only be explained by God. Watch this. They're arresting them. They're fishermen. There's only 12 of them. They've turned into 250. They've turned into 3,250. Now, watch. He's given this thing. People come around. They're going to get arrested. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Whoa. Now, I want you to think about this. Some people believe 5,000 people got saved right there. Other people believe, no, that means 2,000 people got saved because 3,000 were prior. I want you to wipe both of those out of your head. I don't know, maybe. It says there were 3,000 men there. Now, maybe because it was a certain time on the Temple Mount, Maybe, but they did have a court of women where you could go, and it was in the outer courts. So if it was just 5,000 men, there was women too. Wow, powerful. It's the unexplainable. You've just 
witness the glory of God right here in the scriptures. One writer writes this as we close about Acts 3 and the life of a Christian. He says this, as you begin your day today, this is a good pattern to emulate. Watch. Walking forth, filled and empowered. Ready for this? Don't look at the musicians. Looking for lame souls who need the healing touch of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again because you're looking at the musicians. It's like saying pink elephant. You'll think about pink elephants, right? As you begin your day today or any day, this is a good pattern to emulate. Walking forth, filled and empowered, looking for lame souls, weak, lame, who need the healing touch of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This makes life an adventure of a lifetime, an adventure of a lifetime. Lord, give us all the eyes to see the events, the places, and the people with your eyes, Lord, and your heart, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.